This is an ABC podcast. Hello, and thanks for downloading this Rear Vision podcast. If you're a Rear Vision regular, you're probably like me, knee-deep in news and what's going on in the real world. But if you think you're getting a bit too much reality these days, you might like to check out another Radio National podcast that taps into the spiritual side of things. It's called Soul Search. And even if you're not a believer, you'll hear some interesting people talking about surprising things. You'll find Soul Search wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision, where today we look at the fight over Australia's native forests, the subject of both legal challenge and protest this year in Tasmania and Victoria. After years of quiet in Tasmania's forests, conservationists have ramped up their protests against native logging. More than two dozen protesters have been arrested this year. The Bob Brown Foundation protesters have renewed protest action since the start of the month and now WorkSafe Tasmania have taken the unprecedented move with issuing the foundation with a prohibition notice, effectively banning them from protesting in all of the state's forests. Australia's native forests have been contested territory ever since the first white colonists intruded on Aboriginal land. While most forest destruction has occurred in the name of agriculture, logging, especially in the latter part of the 20th century, became the source of sometimes violent conflict. But let's start in the 19th century, when a timber industry was established using wood from both native forests and plantations. Peter Konoski is Professor of Forestry at the Australian National University. The European colonisation of Australia established trade patterns, particularly with Britain originally, exporting Tasmanian blue gum, for example, and jarrah from Western Australia, which had particular qualities that made them very desirable for use in those industrial cities in, in Europe. But some parts of Australia, let's say South Australia, are not naturally well forested with commercially valuable trees. And there, plantation forests were established first in the 1860s. So Australia has a long history of establishing plantation forests for producing wood for industrial use. And that plantation expansion was relatively slow for the first 100 years or so. It wasn't until the 1960s that it really accelerated. So up until that time, the majority of wood that was harvested in Australia was harvested from our native forests. Some of it was exported, but much of it was used locally for the building of Australian cities and for after the 1930s when CSIRO discovered how to do it to make paper from eucalypt pulp. So we were a country at that time that produced much of the wood we needed from our native forests. We also imported wood, particularly from Western North America, species like Douglas fir that had properties that Australia's native forest species didn't have. And one of the motivations for establishing plantations was that Australia's relatively poor in softwood species, so-called, the conifers. We've got some wonderful conifers, but they're not as extensive as they are in the northern hemisphere. And industry was used to using that sort of wood. It's well suited to purposes like building houses. And so there was also a recognition amongst those early foresters that to produce that sort of wood, we would need to plant it in plantations. So now we have about a million hectares of those sorts of plantations that produce much of the wood we use in, say, commercial and residential construction. 
Professor David Lindenmeyer is a landscape ecologist and conservation biologist at the ANU. He says a frontier mentality prevailed in the first half of the 20th century. I think there was a sense that the resources were unlimited. There were such massive areas of forest that there seemed to be no sense that we would run out of timber. And we had actually seen evidence of that in the in the century preceding that with essentially the mining of red cedar and its essential functional extinction in the wild. So if I take the area that I've worked in for 37 years, that area, the central highlands of Victoria, is really the most important timber catchment in the state of Victoria. And in the 1920s, there was over 240 sawmills in that one region. Now there's six. There were so many sawmills, so many people living in the forest, yet no comprehension that the resource might be overcut, and it was dramatically overcut. And it's interesting in contrast to places in Europe where they'd really heavily cut the forest some 100 years, 200, 300 years earlier, and the early ideas of sustainable forestry in terms of being able to regularly re-enter stands of trees and take out a proportion of the forest and keep that going in perpetuity. That had started to be developed in in Europe, particularly by the Germans, several centuries earlier, whereas that psyche really didn't fit at all with how forests were being cut in places like Victoria or New South Wales or elsewhere. And one of the important things in this space was that the early conservationists were actually foresters who prevented forests from being cleared and converted into agriculture. These foresters worked for state departments, which were established to manage the forests. At Federation, the states and territories retained responsibility for natural resources, and these government foresters often fought against the destruction of native forests, at least one, EHF Swain, losing his job in the process. And in my mind, the epitome of that era is the Royal Commission into the Closer Settlement of North Queensland, the Queensland Government established in the early 1930s, and the then Conservator of Forests, that fledgling forest agency, EHF Swain, led a very vigorous public campaign against the political motivation of the Commission, which was to declare that areas of Yathan and Tableland should be converted from rainforest and eucalypt forest to farmland. And uh, the Royal Commission declared in its report that the the present wealth of the country suffers from the fact that there are too many rather than too few trees. And uh, Swain was sacked for opposing that view. So I think that's the characterisation, if you like, of the way that the Australian body politic thought about forests that time. And so the foresters of that era were really fighting on a couple of fronts. The first was in relation to reserving forests from conversion to agriculture. The second fight that the foresters were having then was with a very unregulated timber industry that was used to a history of exploitation without much concern for sustainability. There were exceptions, of course, but there was also a frontier mentality in that industry as there was in other industries. So I think that's the general picture that I'd paint for that era. And it took until the 1970s for that to change. There's a terrific earshot about the forester EHF Swain. I'll put a link on the Rear Vision webpage in case you want to hear it. 
Forests of ironbark trees and jarrah, red gum, tallow wood, and mountain ash. Here in the coastal ranges of Australia flourish the giant eucalypts. Now the timber getters' camps have taken root. Pioneer settlements, deep in the forests, far from the cities and towns. Free falling is a job for strong and skillful men. Tools of trade are the axe and the six-foot cross-cut saw. The axe, four and a half pounds and razor sharp. Let no one else touch it, not even your best mate. From a film called The Timber Getters, made by the Australian National Film Board in 1952. The timber industry really took off after the Second World War. Dr John Dargavel is a forester who's worked for both government and the timber industry. The boom times really started from the expansion in the 1950s when people were, we were rebuilding Australia, trying to build houses all over the place, starting new mills, but also having to face, in Victoria in particular, and partly in New South Wales, the huge effects of the 1939 bushfires. So it was an enormously active period and a lot of money eventually flowed into the forestry departments and particularly for research because, you know, it was a huge problem. All these different sorts of forests spread out all over Australia and the task of just finding where they were, how much there was, and how fast the trees were growing, what different sorts of trees, how you could um, actually regenerate them, how their seeds grew and so forth. That was an enormous task, but it was done with a great deal of vigour right through the 50s, 60s. Forestry was a very flourishing, very positive sort of environment for the people working in it, but very little known in a public sense. Dr Dargavel says that during the post-war decades, the timber industry gained more political influence. The whole theory of, of forestry is that you don't cut more than you can grow. But, of course, when you start to control things, people complain about that. So the, the sawmills gradually wanted more and more and better and better wood, and their political pressure increased on the state authorities. That was always a juggling act between any regulator and the people who are regulated. Generally, as time went by, the ability of foresters to regulate the industry decreased. The demand for wood in the post-war years led to the clearing of native forests to establish plantations. That era was one that focused on national development in a big picture sense. My own university, ANU, was established as a result of that. But there was a a strong investment in expanding housing for Australians after the uh, Second World War in particular, and the resource to supply that wood came primarily from our native forests. And if we talk to foresters familiar with that era, we find that there was a conscious policy of harvesting more than the sustainable yield, that is the long-term sustainable production of wood from a particular forest, a conscious policy of over-harvesting knowingly in recognition of that sort of national need with the anticipation that as the plantation estate developed and matured, the production of wood would progressively move from our native forests to those plantation forests. And that's largely what's happened. 
but we've had quite a few bumps in the road along that way, including the expansion of plantation forests in the 1960s and 70s, taking place through the conversion of our native forests to plantations rather than the establishment of plantations on already cleared land. And that happened because farmers were pretty strongly opposed to the establishment of plantations on agricultural land, so were the politicians in general. The state governments had large areas of public land that was forested, much of which was not valued for commercial wood production, despite its other values. And so it was a sort of easy choice politically to establish more plantations by clearing native forests, something we don't do anymore. But that had a really big impact on our native forests in the 60s, 70s and through to the 80s. The other factor that emerged around the same time was the development of markets for export wood chips, first of all in Japan, then elsewhere in North Asia. And that gave the opportunity to foresters, as they saw it, to address the 100 years of what foresters call high grading, the harvesting of the best trees in the forest, leaving behind poorer trees from a commercial point of view, and degrading the quality of the forest over time. The whole idea was, and we were taught this when I was doing undergraduate forestry, was that the wood chip industry was there to clean up the forest, to get rid of all the rubbish, so that then you would have a saw log industry that would follow after that. And really what happened was that the wood chip industry resulted in an enormous increase in the size of areas that were cut, the way areas were cut, often with very intensive clear cutting or clear felling, and a very high volume but very low value product, which is wood chips. And so that that really has changed the forest in dramatic ways. And of course, what was supposed to happen was that it was a saw log driven industry with the, the rubbishy bits of timber then going into wood chips. But in, in fact, what happened was that in many cases, upwards of 90% of everything that was being cut was being fed into this wood chip mill in the Eden area of southeastern New South Wales. And that really spelt the end of major sawmilling operations. And what really happened was that the tail started to wag the dog significantly. And that's really happened right across the, the entire native forest sector right throughout southeastern Australia. So if, if you go to Victoria, similar kind of situation, 87% of everything that's cut in native forests in Victoria now actually goes into the wood chip and paper pulp stream. And it's not sawn timber at all. So really the tail wags the dog in, in both of those states. And what that means is that there's been a savage erosion in the native forest sector to the extent that 88% of all sawn timber in both New South Wales and in Victoria actually comes from the plantation estate and not from the native forest sector. So that industrialisation of forestry, I think, has had massive negative implications, not only for the saw log part of the industry, but also for the forest itself, because now we're starting to see some really quite perverse and difficult things emerging from those forests that have been treated in that way. And one of those big problems has been that widespread clear felling fundamentally changes the forest in ways that makes it far more flammable. Now we see much more widespread fires and much more severe fire across the landscape than we ever previously had. And those legacies will last for 30 or 40 years after logging. So we're now at a 40, 50 year period after the, the instigation of widespread wood chip 
exports and our forests have fundamentally changed as a result of that. This is Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. As the battle over logging in Australia's native forests moves from the bush to the courts, we're hearing the story of the so-called forestry wars. The battle between the New South Wales government and conservationists at Terrania Creek continued today with the arrest of a further 12 protesters who were attempting to prevent the commencement of logging at the Terrania Creek rainforest. 130 police guarded a bulldozer as it broke through conservationists to start forest logging. Police pulled people from the path of the 20-ton bulldozer, arresting 12 and charging them with obstruction. The 300 conservationists have been blockading the forest roads for 12 days now, but today, after a cabinet reaffirmation that logging should go ahead, the police and the Forestry Commission swung into action. The Terrania Creek protest in the late 1970s was a watershed moment in the development of Australia's environment movement, with the first rainforest anti-logging demonstrations, ultimately successful. That agitation changed the trajectory of forest management. It challenged the hegemony of forest agencies to make decisions about how forests would be managed without public consultation, which had been their practice. And in the first instance, let's say, from the Terrania Creek period in the late 1970s through really for 20 years till the regional forest agreements, that sort of activism led to largely ad hoc conservation or reservation from logging of particular forests that were of particular value to particular communities. But it was happening in a very ad hoc way. There wasn't an overall oversight of the landscape and the values of forests and the biodiversity, which of course is distributed in ecological pattern across the landscape. And it wasn't until a series of those sorts of activist protests particularly in, but not only in Tasmania, elevated political debate through the 19, early 1990s into the mid-1990s with the famous log truck blockade of Parliament House as one of its manifestations. It wasn't until then that the federal government, which had hitherto really reacted on a case-by-case basis as well, found a different way to engage with the states about the future of forest management and it called that process the regional forest agreement. So that was the major consequence of that period of of activism that began in the 1970s. The regional forest agreement was meant to bring peace and security to Tasmania's forest battlegrounds. But today, Prime Minister John Howard was the first target of an angry campaign to be waged around the country, with another 14 similar agreements yet to be signed. As a pensive Prime Minister edged his way towards signing the deal which will abolish woodchip export licence controls and protect 400,000 hectares of forest from logging, protesters showed forest peace is still a long way off. The thing that kicked them off was that the Commonwealth just couldn't get agreement within the Federal Cabinet. It became ridiculous that Federal Ministers were arguing about which bit of forest in which state should be cut. So they eventually came up with this plan, which I think was originally suggested by somebody, one of the industry uh, lobbyists, actually. It was quite a clever idea. Okay, let's survey 
all the forests, find out what all the values are in the different parts. Let's have a comprehensive assessment right across the country in the high value forests. And then we'll sit down and we'll work out, you know, which forests can be used for logging, which have got to be conserved for particular purposes and so forth. Well, that, that idea was very fine idea and the assessments were carried out generally fairly well. But the problem with it was, of course, the eventual agreements were not open for public debate. They were things that were cooked up in private backroom deals between Commonwealth and state governments. So there were two problems with it. First, the way in which these things were negotiated was rather secret. And the second thing was that the actual problems that they were trying to negotiate were not commensurable. Ideas of preserving all the ecology in all the forests with the idea that you could still use them for productive purposes, those ideas were incompatible and they still are. And that, in fact, is the whole problem of, in a, in a tiny way, of the whole problem of humans living in the world. Unsurprisingly, there's a range of views on the success of the regional forest agreements. David Lindenmeyer. The sad reality is that the regional forest agreements have been an absolutely catastrophic and abysmal failure. So we've seen massive losses of biodiversity in most forested areas. We've seen huge erosion in, in employment in significant parts of southeastern Australia in particular. The industry is largely uneconomic. So, for example, if we go to the East Gippsland part of northeastern Victoria, the native forest industry has been uneconomic for well over a decade. It makes a major loss. One of the other really critical parts of regional forest agreements in terms of their deficiencies is that they don't account for other values, such as the value of forests for producing water, the value of forests for storing carbon as part of tackling climate change. And those kinds of emissions from the regional forest agreements are really huge deficiencies. In the 20 years since regional forest agreements were first developed, there's an enormous amount of new information about forests and how they should be managed and all kinds of things. And so it's essentially like having a media policy that ignores the internet. So I'll give you a good example. What happens in Victoria and probably elsewhere is that the amount of forest is worked out and then you work out what's called a sustained yield, which is how much timber you're going to take out of that forest every year. But in Victoria, what happened was that they didn't account for the fact that they were going to lose a large amount of the resource to fire. And so essentially what happened was that the resource was almost instantly overcommitted. And so that's exactly what happened. The forest eventually got massively overcut. So after the big fires in 2009, Victorian government dragged its feet for many, many, many years. It didn't change its sustained yield, even though for some of the most important types of forests for timber production, up to half of it had been burnt. And now we're seeing the same thing happen. So 2019, 2020, enormous amounts of wood production forest in Victoria and southern New South Wales were burnt. But how that actually features in recalibrating the sustained yield is not yet apparent. And what quite clearly is going to happen is that the resource is going to be massively overcut unless there's a rejigging and a substantial reduction in how much of the forest is cut. 
Well, it's a curate's egg, I think, good in parts and less so in others. I think the parts in which they're inarguably good has been that they did apply a science-based process to determining forest values, particularly biodiversity and environmental values, but also Indigenous and non-Indigenous cultural values. And through that process, greatly expanded the national park system and other reservation of forests from extractive use. And we're much better nationally in terms of conservation outcomes as a result of that. The conservation movement has argued from the time that the regional forest agreements were introduced that that did not go far enough. So that's been a a continuing source of friction. From the point of view of Indigenous Australians, I think that the regional forest agreements legitimated for the first time their interests, their profound interests, of course, in managing their country. And whilst, no, it hasn't been a smooth pathway since the regional forest agreements in terms of Indigenous interests in forests, I think it established a a basis for future collaboration between Indigenous owners and forest agencies and and other interests. The regional forest agreements focused only on public land and in doing that didn't take a view of how forests on private land or private land that could become forested could contribute to management goals both in conservation and production. The other outcome of the regional forest agreement was to greatly strengthen the regulations around how forests were managed for wood production and those standards in Australia are amongst the most rigorous globally. Whatever else you can say about the regional forest agreements, they certainly haven't put an end to the forestry wars. As well as active protests in the forests, conservationists are taking their battle to the courts. In July, the community group Friends of Leadbeater's Possum won a case against Victoria's state logging agency, which was found to have contravened federal environment law. And last month, the Bob Brown Foundation launched federal court action, challenging the legal validity of the Tasmanian Regional Forest Agreement. I think that the way in which people see the management of our native forests depends very much on their values. We have members of our community who value forests exclusively for their environmental values. And those members of the community argue that you prejudice those values by harvesting forests for timber. Another group of professional foresters, of whom I'm one, would argue that it is possible and indeed in cases desirable to manage forests in particular ways and that we don't prejudice the environmental values and services of forests by doing that if we do it well. I think one of the really interesting things that's starting to happen, certainly in southern Australia, is that the public appetite for ongoing native forest logging is waning dramatically, even in regional Australia. Social surveys done by the Victorian government indicate that there's a very strong opposition, even in parts of regional Australia, that you wouldn't expect. Our research has taken us into the area of economic and environmental accounting. You actually see that the value of the native forest timber industry is very small relative to the value of those same forests, for example, water production, tourism, even for carbon storage. You have to remember that this is a public asset. So it's owned by the public, and the public really needs to maximise its return on investment. 
I mean, we can use all the native forests just as conservation reserves, cancel all the agreements and so forth, and rely on plantations and imports. But neither of those are very good solutions. So our inability to find acceptable ways of managing our native forests so that we can conserve their values and use them to some extent has to be found. I mean, that is where really hope has to lie. I find it difficult to think how resolution can be found, but the need is still there. I mean, the great idea of forestry and the great idea of ecology, they're both still there. We haven't done very well at resolving them in Australia, but the need is still there. We still have to find a way. John Dargaval, forest historian and honorary associate professor at the Australian National University. Thanks to him and my other guests, also from the ANU, Peter Konoski, Professor of Forestry in the Fenner School of Environment and Society, and Professor David Lindenmeyer, an expert in landscape ecology, conservation and biodiversity. Russell Stapleton is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.